Hey there, welcome to the Faces of Marketing podcast, where we talk about the human stories and lives of different people and perspectives in the marketing profession and entrepreneurs and movement makers. This is your host, Ryan Buchanan, and I'm sitting in the warm and inviting home of my good friend, Sadie Lincoln, who started Bar 3 10 years ago to reimagine what fitness and wellness should be for people instead of the facade that it's become. Welcome to the show, Sadie. Hi, Ryan. Welcome to my home. This is yeah, <laughs> this is awesome. I'm sitting in this beautifully well-lit home that I've had dinner in before. Sadie didn't have her two dogs around because they might have added a little barking noise in the background, which would have added ambiance, I think. They but. still might, just okay. caveat. And your <laughs> two kiddos are out playing? or One of them's in school and one of them's still sleeping at 1130. They're still in school? Catholic school? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Um, Cool. We'll get to that. Mm -hmm. Um, But (laughs) just wanted to, before I started off on the official part of the podcast, I kind of wanted to give you uh, some kudos. And through our friendship, I just, I kind of want the audience to know that I feel like one of your unique abilities is just your ability to kind of read people and read energy and I have just learned so much from you I think it's been about three years since we've really gotten to know each other well and um and so I just want one of the main purposes of the podcast is to humanize the myths that even us as entrepreneurs create about entrepreneurs and that um and that it's you know no one wants to hear about like the whining of successful entrepreneurs, but like it can be a very lonely experience. And so I just, I think it's going to be fun to kind of get, um, get some of those stories to come out. And, um, I do also want to admit that I do feel a little bit like a copycat and a fraud, kind of a little bit because the interview that you had with Guy Raz and how I built this is truly what inspired me to start my whole podcast of faces of marketing to begin with. So with that whole ramble, um, I got that out of the way <laughs> and wanted to kick off with a few questions um, that kind of um, start with a premise of just, uh, you know, how you grew up and, um, you know, talk about, you know, your relationship with your mom, your brother Miguel, and, and just kind of, you know, I think a lot of us have heard your story of growing up on a commune, but just help us visualize it a little bit. Okay, but first we have to go back to what you just said. (laughs) All right, please do. You just called yourself a copycat and a fraud, and I'd like to address that. Because I think a lot of us entrepreneurs, we have something that's called an imposter syndrome, where we all sort of feel like that. Like, who am I to be doing this, right? Guy Raz has this amazing podcast with this amazing vision and it's well-received and you took that idea and you're making it your own and it's abs- you're absolutely deserving and I know it's going to also be wildly, wildly successful. Uh, and at, to your point, I think a lot of us put entrepreneurs on a pedestal that I couldn't be like that. And the, the truth is, is, and I know this just sitting around the table with our entrepreneur group, every single one of us, we have insecurities, we have vulnerabilities. Um, you know, we don't, we don't always have the answers. In fact, most of the time we don't. And, um, I think that's just good to, to acknowledge and also to remember that, um, we might think we don't have the answers, but when we look inside, we really do every single one of us. 
Well, thank you. I mean, one of the things that has surprised me is how, as an entrepreneur of a creative agency, I have gotten away from creating things. And this mm-hmm. podcast has brought that back where I get to I mean, the sound quality isn't great and like all of these things, I'm just learning all these tools. Mm -hmm. And the most fun thing about it is that I'm interviewing friends and I learn these like really meaningful, cool backstories Mm -hmm. to friends who I've had for a long time that uh, I'm like, God, I want like I need to do this with my wife because like even (laughs) Shannon, she's... (laughs) I feel like I could learn something from her, even though she's heard my stories like at least a thousand times and I've heard hers a thousand times. Yeah. But it's just a really fun thing to have this intentional conversation about what made us who we are before the company, you know? Yeah. Yeah. We're just the human side, the human side. Yeah, exactly. So, okay, let's get to the, the, um, how you grew up. Well, how I grew up, you're probably referring to my alternative upbringing, because I know that's intriguing to a lot of people. It's not different to me. It's my normal. But I've come to learn that people are interested in it. My mom and her best friends met each other in their early 20s in the late 60s. They were part of the counterculture and dropped out of mainstream and reimagined their lives. Uh, And my mom calls if she she doesn't like labels and specifically the label of hippie but I mean come on they were hippies <laughs> she said we were country intellectual hippies if she had to give herself a label and it was four of her best female it friends? ended up being it started out the four of them and then we added on one person when we moved to Eugene so this was in Taos New Mexico long story short they each had children with different dads and the dads all split and out of just being practical and in a collaborative spirit, they raised us kids together. And we didn't always live together in the same place, but we lived really near each other. And we were gypsy-like. We moved around a lot and shared resources and values. And the beautiful thing is it wasn't just a moment in time, whereas a lot of people in that era dropped out and then kind of went back to normal and somehow what they built was so magical that it, it withstood the test of time. We ended up moving to Eugene, Oregon. That's where we met Susan, the, the fourth auntie. I call them my aunties. Um, and then she has Chia and Kyle. Um, and then Lucia has Miguel. Lois has Lark. Dan and Drew. Um, my mom has me. So, And Liz has Sophia. That, that's the whole tribe. And we stayed together as a tribe um, all the way. We still are. We get together on holidays. We support each other. Um, I have this incredible extended. Uh, I wrote a paper about it in at UCLA in sociology of family class. And I found a term for it. It's called fictive kin, which is basically your chosen family. And I think the reason we stayed together and looking back on it now, I'm really fascinated in spirituality that we had our own religion in a way, our own reason for coming together and bonding on core, core values. And ours was around kind of based in Jungian psychology because that's what they all studied and really enjoyed. But we would sit in a circle, for example, often and share our dreams and analyze them basically. They were really a jumping off point to look inside for answers, to be seen, to be heard, um, and to give each person in the circle for full permission to be their their most 
authentic self. And so that that's kind of the magic to how we stayed together, I think, over time. Yeah, it's funny. I was talking to Janelle Isaacson um, and Sue Embry, and we were from the outside looking in. We're like, wow, Sadie and Miguel, and they're just this like super genuine people, and they happen to be phenomenally successful. Like, we should just like complain to our parents that like, why do we have a traditional upbringing? Like. <laughs> because you guys aren't successful at all and you're you're not interesting either <laughs> no but it's I mean it is it's crazy isn't it and then I've heard other people out you know in different in a different commune situation like maybe it mm-hmm. just stands out because it's it is untraditional and so when someone is successful and there, when there's two or three from the same commune that are just like yeah. off the charts it's like wow why? what's going on like, here why? yeah yeah, I know. I but I that's what I think so beautiful is everybody has a different path. There is no one way. I think it's counter to what most of us think. Most of us think you know a nuclear family, solid values, really strong education, good students, um, are successful. And um, I've come to learn that often that's not the case. That a lot of founders and CEOs didn't even go to college. They had a rough upbringing. They learned things like resilience. Um, depending on their own inner spirit to get them through things. And that's really what brings success out in people over and over and over again. You hear that. That's great. Love it. Um, So you must have a really tight bond with your mom. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I'm so she's arguably one of the most important people in my life. She's my teacher um, my friend, um, trusted, trusted companion. Uh, she's really, f- I look up to her a lot. Uh, she's wise. She's confident. She's thoughtful, open-minded, all she, the things. Is she a teacher or? She's my teacher. Yeah. Yeah. But no. Entrepreneur. So her and my auntie started their own paper in Eugene based on their core values. It was originally called What's Happening. Now it's Eugene Weekly, which is the alternative news in Eugene, Oregon to this day. So they started that in our living room together. I was thinking, I remembered a story that you told before. She's kind of a social justice fighter. Like she, she's an activist. Yeah, they all are. But I wouldn't say they're not out like, yelling with campaign signs there and this is this is hard to understand but their activism is more around um looking inside for answers and being more intellectual about it versus really a public figure out out in the world yeah that's cool Mm -hmm. that's cool um so now you have a son and a daughter and your daughter i think is a year younger than my daughter Grace, and I'm just in this mindset of Grace going into junior year and starting to think about college and things like that. And so mm-hmm. I kind of want to put you back into that that time mm-hmm. where how how was your college discovery process like where you – maybe looked at a bunch of colleges and then you said UCLA is the one for me. How, how did that go? 
It's a great question and something I like to talk about because I think as a parent of a 14-year-old, she's going into high school, and a lot of the parents I know were all so worried about our kids being successful and finding the college of their choice, and not all kids are college-bound at first, and I was one of those kids. I didn't get strong grades in high school, nor did I care to. I didn't even take the SATs. I didn't look at a single college. <laughs> How do you get into one of the better colleges in the country like that? I moved to Los Angeles to get to know my father, and I enrolled in a community college called Santa Monica City College, and that is when I discovered my passion for education. Uh, I really liked it. I had great professors, and I did well, and I transferred into UCLA. And then from UCLA, I ended up getting my grad graduate master's degree at the College of William and Mary. So I, I forgot that because I went to UVA, which is mm -hmm. right next yeah. door. Yeah. So you were in the South. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, I was. Good uh, experience. Yeah. Yeah. I think everybody has their own path, and and the the beautiful thing about my mom and my aunties that I think did helped me is I never had shame. I didn't have an ounce of shame of not going to college or even trying to go to college. I believed in myself. I believed in my confidence that I would get there somehow. And I I didn't only believe in myself. And sometimes I maybe doubted myself, but my mom believed in me. I joke that she like really celebrated mediocrity. She's like, good job. You got to see, honey. You did it. <laughs> Our families are so different. I just like straight I up. Know. You don't have to have this. But we ended up kind of similar, right? Yeah. I think there are some commonalities, I bet, of our family, though. They sure. both, you know, loving yeah, me. unconditionally yeah. loving me yeah. and allowing me the freedom to choose my own path self-actualizing she would say to me all the time I know you're gonna make the right answer you know um even when I was dating guys that she was like yeah 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 <laughs> well, you ended up with a good one I did yeah. and she would say you're gonna make the right choice your your things are gonna work out you know she just would always always say that she wouldn't give me the answer she wouldn't say what to do how to do it um she she just gave me permission to know that I already knew got it well, we are going untraditional, nonlinear here, so I'm going to jump back to the eight-year-old Sadie, and when an adult asks you, what do you want to be when you grow up, what was your immediate like gut response? When I was eight, it was anything in the performing arts, and probably I would have loved to be a singer, but <laughs> seriously toned up. <laughs> I'm not, you, I'm not even Do you sing kidding. in the shower? No, least? I'm not allowed. Chris doesn't okay. even let me sing happy birthday. Like, I have to mouth it at birthday parties because I get everybody up to <laughs> Okay. Right. But that's truly what I wanted. I wanted to be Annie. I me remember Annie. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Ch child of the 80s. Yeah. I would sing all those songs at the top of my lungs. I just wanted to be on a stage singing. Okay. Can we hear a little bit Absolutely of it? Absolutely not. <laughs> You'll lose all your listenership. <laughs> no, they'll flock. They'll be like, no, you got to hear this. It's like Elaine and Seinfeld dancing. Right. So, yeah. It'll be played over and over again. No, thank you. Right. <laughs> um, also, so you have this, um, for some of us that grew up in this very traditional way, uh, it's, it seems not normal, but now that you describe it, it seems like really idyllic and... I'm wondering what what were what was an obstacle that you had to overcome kind of through high school and before you got to college? First of all, it wasn't idyllic. Um, 
at the time, I mean, it was my normal. I think I've romanced the story now that I'm older. And I suppose a lot of us do that. You look back and you just kind of mend wounds and then you see the beautiful side of things. And that's actually who I am. I'm, I was born half, glass half full. But really, I mean, I have, there was trauma a little bit for me. For one thing, we, there wasn't a lot of stability and kids crave stability. We, I think I moved, my mom and I counted 13 times by the time I was eight years old. We had like, I remember we had a house without walls during the summer. My mom found this property that was being built. So it literally just had a foundation. It did have a toilet plumbing, but it, they hadn't built the walls yet and they abandoned it for some reason. And we lived in it for the summer, you know, and that's the kind of, and it was wonderful and beautiful. And I actually, that was actually a really, I have lovely memories from that. And there were men, boyfriends. Was, was that legal or? Pro oh, no, I got it. <laughs> we didn't really care about legal back then. <laughs> Shh. Got it. Um, you know, it was definitely, there was some rebellious spirit there. I had, at that same house without walls, I remember the only guy I've ever called daddy was my mom's boyfriend at the time. His name is Randy. Don't know where he is. He, I mean, there were men that came in and out. So I had lots of kind of men that sort of came in and out and in and out. I didn't have a stable father figure ever. Um, I, well, let me, not ever. I had, my stepdad came into my life, Bill, who ended up becoming an incredible person in my life. And he was with my mom basically from the age of eight until recently they got a divorce. He, but I never called him dad. He was definitely more of kind of, um, I don't know. Different, uh, we had a different, really special relationship. Like steady Bill. Yeah. Yeah. And also spiritual, super spiritual. Um, he's still who I go to if I'm having problems, and he guides me in a, in a really lovely way. But he didn't take on the dad role because my mom didn't want him to. It was sort of our thing. She just, it just, that was our family dynamic. Yeah. Um, and then with your aunties and your kind of brothers and sisters, do you do big family reunions every couple of years around Thanksgiving or some kind of summer? Like, how do you all get together? Do you? Still? We we did actually recently do a family re reunion to celebrate Lois, who's my godmother and the oldest auntie, um, her 80th birthday, and that was that was wonderful. We all got together. Miguel and I rented a huge house and we all stayed together. That's pretty rare, but uh, most of them are still in Eugene, Oregon, and so we all kind of meander over there. In fact, this weekend, Miguel's giving the commencement address at U of O, and the whole tribe is going. So he's going to have a, a big cheering, cheering section with all this. Not everybody knows who Miguel is. So you want to, I, I co-founded this entrepreneur group called Starve Ups with him a while ago, but obviously not nearly as close as you are to your brother. So you want to describe Miguel McKelvey? Yes. Um, first of all, he's my brother and he's younger than me. <laughs> but a lot taller, and we don't have the same parents, as I mentioned. He um, played basketball at UVO. He was a good student and college-bound uh, and studied architecture at UVO and super entrepreneurial, ended up at American Apparel, being an architect there, started his own company called English Baby, um, abandoned that, and ultimately ended up founding WeWork, which is an incredibly successful business empire. Um, and that's what he does today. He lives in Manhattan and yeah, he's a baller for sure. 
but the most understated, humble baller you'll ever meet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's incredible. He's a great guy. Mm-hmm. Um, so going back to William and Mary, you were getting your uh, master's in education. Mm-hmm. And I recall in the past three years, you saying, gosh, when I start getting pulled in all these directions and maybe go through a hard time and start to lose my way a little bit, I come back to like wanting, like knowing that being a teacher is at my core. And I kind of wanted you to expand on like, how, how did you know that, 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 I guess it gives you joy, but like, how do you know that that is your center being a teacher and things like that? Well, a couple things come to mind. Number one, I mentioned I wasn't a good student and I actually had low self-esteem and shame around. I felt stupid. Um, Part of that is I went to an alternative grade school and we didn't learn the basics. So when I hit middle school, I was not equipped with the tools I needed to be successful. And although I was really creative and I had a lot of confidence because in an art program, that's what you learn. And it was very free flow, low, and, you know, the curriculum was all over the place. And I can say that I remember teachers who didn't judge me or grade me or measure me by external measures, such as grades, like hitting the test, but more who I was and what I knew and what I brought to the table. And to me, that's a defining, to this day, a defining feature of an educator I look up to is someone who sees the best in their their students and meets them where they are and actually teaches them that they are their own best teacher. And a, a, a teacher who I admire is someone who is not a guru, isn't someone that says, I know all the answers, but that has this love of learning and curiosity and an open heart and mind. And that's what resonates with me. And that is what I I love, just being the guide and creating a safe container so people can discover that within themselves. That's awesome. Um, So you went from graduating from William & Mary's master's program, and I always find that first job out of college, or in this case, Mm -hmm. after your master's degree, is what was your first real job and how windy was it to get there? Like how hard was it to get that first job? It was honestly pretty easy. Um, I, my motivation was I wanted to live in San Francisco and I knew I would like to do something in fitness because I ran the fitness and um, training program at the College of William and Mary. I had a full ride graduate assistantship assistantship there doing that. And that's what I did at UCLA as my kind of extracurriculars. I ran the group exercise program. So I've been doing this for a long time. And right out of um, grad school, there was an ad back then in the paper for this company called 24-Hour Nautilus, which was quickly turned to 24-Hour Fitness, based in San Francisco. And I wanted to live there with a friend of mine. So I was like, I'll try it for that job. And I got the job. And it ended up being a great opportunity for me. I was 25 years old, responsible for all the group exercise and 20-something gems. And within a year of being there, we had 40 gems. We acquired another chain that was about the same size in Southern California, changed the name to 24-Hour Fitness. And then fast forward 10 years later, I was still there. We were at 430 gems around the globe 
And, um, you know, I learned so much in that experience about how to scale, how to build brand, how to um, understand and, and relate to the fitness industry at, at large. Okay, so we're going to do a little bit different thing than my question, and it's going to be I'm going to try and describe to you what I think bar three was addressing in the beginning, and you're going to correct me. Okay. Okay. That's fun. So I think I remember you telling the story of you were at 24-Hour Fitness, and... it seemed to be the entire industry was having this messaging and this core belief that you have to be hardcore and you have to sweat and you have to have pain and you've got to push it. And it was all this like super testosterone driven, um, almost just like, you know, it was like unattainable and it was all about like muscle build and not this like wellness, like your mind, body, spirit kind of is all working together in connection. And you left there with your, were you married to Chris at the time? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. With your husband to start bar three together to say, we can do this differently. And we, you know, it's not going to just be, you know, like a twist on yoga or Pilates. It's obviously there is a bar component, but it is going to be creating a tribe of primarily women and giving people permission that they can work out a couple of days. And then on the third day, they can eat chocolate if they want, because that's good for their, you know, mind and spirit. Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Anything with chocolate yeah. is good for you. But it's like <laughs> this, like reimagining fitness to be free to, um, to be yourself, but also to have a guide, um, for being healthier. Is that somewhat on point yeah the most on point statement there is free fitness to be yourself is that what you said Mm, that was good something like that yeah because what I experienced and I still do to this day I still do to this day my vision is to redefine what success in fitness means and success in fitness at 24-hour fitness and there's nothing wrong with this, by the way. It's, the, it's that model that works. It just didn't work for me. Success in fitness at 24 Fitness, our tagline was bigger, better, stronger. And success meant following formulas that were scientifically based um, to get to a certain look of fitness, an external measure of success, or to win the race, to fit into your skinny jeans, to get bikini ready, to have ripped abs to um, lose the fat, to do this. Um, a lot at 24 Fitness of our, in fact, all of our spokespeople were super athletes. They were incredible athletes like Andre Agassi, Shaquille O'Neal, Lance Armstrong, or supermodels. Um, Cindy Crawford was what was our spokesperson. And they were living this ideal of fitness, you know, these incredible, athletic, beautifully you know, bodied people that we were all dutifully following formulas to emulate and look like. And even today, we are bombarded with imagery like that and messages around that, that if you do this, you will look like this. 
you know, do this for 60 days and melt the fat away, right? Um, Fight aging, do this. Everything what is attached to an ideal. And immediate gratification. And immediate gratification as soon as possible. Make it happen quick. Um, The faster, the better. Exactly. And there's a lot, there's something to that. I mean, we all, all want to be healthy. It is, is, it is scientifically proven that calories in, calories out equals, you know, the weight of your body, for example, energy in, energy out. But there's so much more. And when we measure our success based on external measures of success, we're not truly empowered as individuals. Where's the me in that? My body is so wonderfully, uniquely different than your body. You need a completely different program than I do. I guarantee it. Because we are that's what makes us so beautiful. That's what makes up humanity is diversity. And there's so much shame in exercise because we're all set up for these ideals. None of us can really ever attain it. And so we feel shameful and we drop out. Only, I think it's like 5% of the population work out regularly. 5%. Because in, in a gym, in a model like that, in a gym concept. Right. And what is the percentage of people who are new members in January? <laughs> I don't know the exact percentage. A lot. But yeah, a lot of people. High. Exactly. That's an exact, a, a, a perfect point. It's like, this is the year I'm going to do it. And we all jump in with good intentions and we leave feeling depleted, defeated, like exercise is something outside of ourselves instead of truly something we embody. And I set out with fitness to redefine what success was around the power of community, the power of making it your own, modifying postures so that they feel really good in your body, the power of instead of coming in to want a hard body, actually leaving with a wise body, knowing more about yourself and being able to give yourself permission to stand up for yourself and do the kind of exercise that actually feels really good because it feels really good. And you leave feeling energized and full of energy and accomplished, then you're going to come back. And at the end of the day, the other thing that I shout from the rooftops is exercise is not the answer. It isn't the answer. And we've been fed that for years and years and years, that if you exercise regularly, you will be fit. And it's simply not the truth. It's one way to build muscle, to build sweat to build focus, to be attentive, to take care of yourself. But it's just a piece of the equation. And we don't need to put so many eggs in that basket. And the other pieces are eating healthy, meditation. Nourishing your body in a way that's intuitive for you. Again, everybody has their own ways of doing that. Um, being, finding ba- being in pursuit of balance. So that doesn't mean that you ever get to balance, but aware of when you're imbalanced and then moving towards a more balanced state, relationships are just as healthy as exercise. That's been proven over and over again. When you look at areas, the blue zone, blue zone, have you heard of that? The areas of the world where people live the longest, the people who thrive, that's really what fitness is, thriving, being healthy. Um, they live close to nature. They move intuitively and they usually move as part of their lifestyle. So they garden, they cut down trees, they, they're out in the ocean, they're doing things in nature. Um, that are more intuitive and functional. Like Scandinavian countries? There, it's, it's all over the world. I know one of them is in San Luis Obispo. There's Mediterranean. There's um, in a little village in Italy. There's all these different communities. If you look it up, the Blue Zone, you can learn more about it. But one of the common forces of common themes in all those is relationship. 
and having a true connection and a village around you that supports you. And so that's, you know, what we set out to do is let's create a community of support versus competition. That's the other thing is a lot of fitness is about competing and comparing. Like I'm going to do that push up deeper than my neighbor next to me. I'm going to go deeper in that lunge. I'm going to burn more calories. I'm going to run faster. I'm going to, you know, or maybe even competing with yourself. And I see that even more people. Like orange theory is all about competing with and, yourself. Well, I love, you know, I think orange theory is phenomenal, but they, that is one model of fitness that is very much about external forces, measures, numbers. And I think there is great power in looking inside for answers and moving intuitively as well. And that's my thing is that there's room for all of us. There's room for external measures. There's just a real lack in the internal measures of success, which are truly empowering. And, um, yeah. Cool. So, um, next question is on kind of the, the, the name of this podcast. A lot of other entrepreneurs and marketers listen and maybe like 10 of them, but <laughs> my audience isn't that big, but anyway, we're getting uh, there. We're getting there. Yeah, there's still 11 now. Um, <laughs> so I look at iconic companies who created movements in Portland and the two that come to mind are women run companies they're bar three and salt and straw ice cream mm -hmm. and I think a lot of entrepreneurs and marketers look at that and just think well I can just create a movement in my company like what what's the silver bullet like how how do we just create this movement where there's tens of thousands of people that are like diehard loyalists to bar three to salt and straw to mm -hmm. another to we work mm -hmm. um how did how did that happen like was it you training madonna and that all of a sudden like the rest of the world like caught on to it or was it lots of incremental you had uh a dozen women who showed up and you had daycare there and then the next year you had a hundred and like word of mouth. How, how did it all happen? Well, first of all, the startup phase is I didn't worry about honestly creating a movement at the beginning. I simply scratched my own itch. What do I need? And I just trusted that, you know, do I, how am I going to balance the body in this movement? What kind of language would I want to hear when I'm taking class? Would I want to hear get ripped for bikini season or would I want to hear find your tallest self? Do you feel stronger today? You know, the, which, which kind of cueing would I want to be a part of? Like what kind of teacher would I want to take a class from? And I went from there and I taught when I opened my first studio, I taught 19 of the 22 classes a week, held babies in childcare, checked people and got to know every single client and then started to train my first set of instructors uh, based on, and it wasn't only my own itch now, it was their itch too, right? And they were aligned with me and really empowered by what I was doing and wanted to continue to grow it. And it was one person at a time. And then we hit the whole Madonna stage. I did train Madonna and it, there was an article that was in a magazine and that did, of course, help me. Um, but I have to say what was really interesting in that moment in time is there was an article in, I think it was Us Weekly, about me training Madonna and at the same time this girl next door blogger who had this blog called eat live run wrote 
authentically, she had bought at the time it was a DVD. She had bought my DVD, authentically tried it and wrote about it. I had just as much traffic from her blog as I did from Madonna's. Madonna was a cachet, you know, this amazing legacy, right? We all, like, anyone who grew up in the 80s is just like, holy smoke, Sadie, I cannot believe you did that. I'm like, I can't either. It was amazing. But truly, Jenna, who did the blog, was was more powerful to me because she was more like me. And she discovered it for the same reasons I did. And, and because she was more like me, there were so many women who trusted her, really trusted her, and then said, I want to try that too then. Did you have any Madonna songs on the soundtrack Absolutely while you were <laughs> No, no. I really analyzed the music. Yeah, that was, I hired a DJ and I, um, I, I obsessed over that playlist. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It was, it's, it was a rockin' playlist actually. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, let's see here. So there, so it was this organic, um, I know that you are a creative and so you have been really intentional about having a consistent, clear brand throughout mm-hmm. that process. Mm-hmm. That had to be part of the mix to build trust and have yeah. this authentic voice, but be consistent about it. Yeah. I mean, I didn't put on a tag, my tagline, like come and get empowered with me and you're going to find your truest self. And when you modify, you're going to stand up for what you really believe in. I mean, those were the things you're going to honor your truth here. You know, though that would have never brought people in the door. That was my intention when I taught every class was to have everybody learn to honor their own truth and be in the moment versus trying to strive for something outside of themselves. And to this day, that that is what drives us. My tagline was where ballet bar meets yoga and Pilates because I wanted a descriptor to explain to people what the heck bar was because 10 years ago, nobody knew. It wasn't a category in fitness. Today, it's a category in fitness, which is amazing. I feel so accomplished that way. I, I was one of the bar leaders to put it on the map. Uh, and there, people have an association with a ballet bar. They knew what yoga was. They knew what Pilates was. And... Once I got, get them in the door, you see our symbol, which is the B and the three combined with a little dash on the top. It's a nod to the Om symbol. And truly, in a way, bar three is sneaky yoga. And what I mean is it's the spiritual side of yoga that I really relate to, which is about honoring the truth, letting go of attachments, being committed to real, and... Um, the power of being mindful for 60 minutes. And, and now science has ca- caught up to that. We know that that's really good for the brain. It, man, it, it helps us balance our hormones. It um, helps us move forward and um, be productive all day long. And that's what, I, that's what you discover after you get in the door, mm-hmm. right? And I know you obsess over mission, vision, values, and it's been a 10-year journey. And I Mm -hmm. think when we were talking in your kitchen just an hour ago, you were saying you felt really good about the team and you Mm -hmm. really kind of crystallizing that. And so that's going to start getting rolled out, or is it just an extension of what you've always been doing? It's what we've always done. That's I've just had a really hard time putting it into words on paper. Because I built this company on tribal knowledge and really high touch. So every single person who gets trained at Bar 3, we sit in a circle. And instead of giving them core values and having them memorize it or memorize a mission statement or putting the vision statement up on the wall that they see when they walk in, I have this way of pulling it out of them. So it comes out from their own words versus me having them memorize it. And then I reflect it back to them. So that's how we've 
built it up to this point, it, but it had nothing, but we'd never had a brief that I could give a marketing agency because of that. It's just been about community and people all being aligned. So the beautiful thing is I've built this tribe of thousands of team members and community members and including our clients who are already speaking mm -hmm. our vision, mission, and values without them even knowing it, that that's what those are. Mm -hmm. And what's a huge breakthrough for me as I enter the next 10 years of my business is being able to now create a confident marketing campaign around that. Mm -hmm. And it's around being mindful, around being up empowered and authentic and real and having an enduring sustainable workout that's not you know a hockey stick kind of like I'm gonna work out like crazy for 30 days get burned out get injured and not come back approach okay last two questions um so your business model you have three different components uh, a franchise business with mm -hmm. 125 stores? we have 130 now Studios. franchised Okay. And then, and then six, 132 and then six owned. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then you have a digital business, mm -hmm. which is, I, th I am surprised by how large it is because mm -hmm. maybe people don't want to feel shame or like they want to just do it in their basement on their, on their own terms, on their own terms and in their not, pajamas yeah. when they have 30 minutes while the baby's sleeping okay. before work. Some people really enjoy working out alone and having that autonomy. And when you're, when you work out alone, you actually have even more permission to make it your own mm -hmm. um, versus being in a group setting where you feel like a little bit, it's, it's a little more of a struggle to truly be, be in your own individual truth when you're in a group of other I guess people. I'm just so social and I love like there's something so powerful even if you're just quiet and meditating with eight people in yeah. a room or whatever just the the energy gets amplified in this really amazing way so I just would think that people would want to be in group settings in real life but well I, I think that's a, it's a different expression of exercise and they're both really valid and that's what we've discovered is that both are okay there's not one way and again we've been told over and over again that there's one way this is the w best way and we change every day some t some days I feel more introverted some days I'm more extroverted and we have an active online subscriber base in 98 countries you know we don't have studios in 98 yeah. countries so a lot of those people might not have a studio on that who would go to a studio had we yeah. and then is there a third line that's like products and wh what are some examples yeah our retail is another revenue stream so all of our um highly curated thoughtful retail more and more we're trying to just sell products that are we love selling products that are developed by women um, made in a thoughtful purpose-driven way here in the u.s when possible and then we have our retreat business, which we've launched, which is really a full expression of Bar 3. Um, it's, it's something you're personally super passionate I about. I love it. Yeah. It's my favorite thing to do, to bring together people and, um, you know, go deeper on all the things that, you know, we care about. Okay, so last question. Um, if you could tell the audience something they may not know about you, and the context of this question is often something that was kind of a life a life event or experience maybe from when you were a kid or in college or 
earlier in life that kind of gave you the confidence or gave, or or was foundational in some way that is kind of a was maybe foreshadowing that you are where you are now. Hmm. <laughs> That's me fun. Yeah. <laughs> um I think probably this is like I mean, Slumdog Millionaire with like the phone call coming in. Like, do you want to phone a friend for this one? Do you want to call Chris or Miguel or your mom? Oh my gosh. That's a really good question though, Ryan. I've never been asked that. I mean, that they wouldn't know about me. I'm not sure. I mean, I, I mean, I, I can give you an example okay. of for me. Um, so when I was 18, after my freshman year in college, I had a couple of buddies who kind of bailed on me for coming out west. I went to University of Virginia, grew up in Maryland, and I was like, I am going to adventure and I'm just going to do this by myself. I got a job as a night janitor at Glacier National Park at Lake McDonald Lodge, mm -hmm. and I talked to myself for five straight days in the car, kind of went a little crazy, listened to Tracy Chapman nonstop, mm -hmm. <laughs> maybe, maybe <laughs> ACDC every now and then. It was like... <laughs> totally bipolar. Um, but I had this mm -hmm. like unbelievable summer where I realized that like I can do anything on my own. I don't have to, you know, when I came back to college, everyone always had to go to a party with a friend or like go somewhere with someone. I'm like, mm -hmm. if I want to go backpacking or if I want to do something, I'm not going to let anyone hold me back for their schedule. I'm just... I'll travel around the world. I'll do whatever. I'll start a company, like whatever yeah. it is. I now have the confidence to do that. So like that, that was kind of a moment in my life that was like, Hmm, this is, yeah. This yeah. Helped. I think my coming of, those are like, to me, that's a coming of age moment. And I think a couple of them, one of them I already mentioned is driving to Los Angeles at the age of 18 with no real goals. And then just trusting the process and rolling in city college. Sometimes not having a plan is when all the beauty happens, right? I love the quote, it's the sand in the oyster that makes the pearl. That that moment of discomfort, right? Um, is what if just trusting that is what and the same thing happened when I graduated from UCLA. I didn't have a job. All my friends had jobs. They knew where they were going. I took a year in LA and I just did what I liked. I I was a personal trainer. I taught group exercise. I sort of ran around the city and just put a bunch of odd jobs together. And in that, I remember during that, that time, I had time to reflect. And I did this. I just happened to pick up at a garage sale this book. It was Creative Visualization. It's an old book. and It was written in the 70s. And I opened it up one day, and I sat. I'll never forget this. I sat cross-legged in the sun on my little funky porch in my apartment. And I did this creative visualization. I followed the instructions and I wrote out this vision of myself. And I kid you not, it is bar three. And I had no idea what bar was. I mean, that wasn't even, this was. You were like, 18 at the time? I was 21. 21. This is when I graduated from UCLA. And bar three started when you were 34? 33. 33. Okay. Yeah. And in the vision, my, my, the key word that I had was alone. And I saw myself alone, meaning on my own. And I, the picture of me in the background, I had a monitor, a computer monitor with programs for women in it. And they were movement programs. And I had this whole vision 
for myself that literally has happened. And so, um, I don't know. I think that's cool. I really think, you know, you can manifest once in a while. Thoughts become things. Mm -hmm. Intentions. Yeah. Intentions become thoughts, become things. Love it. Mm -hmm. it. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Sadie. My sincere pleasure. It's been great. Hopefully we'll get you 12, 13, 14. (laughs) 100 listeners this time. We're on our way. Yes. Thanks again. Mm -hmm.